All right, so tonight we're picking up in our continued study on the subject of soteriology. Soteriology, as I've mentioned before, is the study of salvation. Um, it comes from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so we have been in this series of lessons. I think that this is uh, audio lesson or video lesson number 34, 35, or, or somewhere in there. Uh, but we are currently looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. We're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. And in tonight's lesson, we are going to look at the holiness of God. Now, next time we meet, we'll jump into one of my favorite categories, which is the doctrine of imputations. Uh, but tonight, we want to take uh, time uh, to work through this subject of the holiness of God. Now, the Bible, which is our textbook, reveals that God is holy. And I have a footnote here, which I'm going to reference, because uh, Paul referred to the Scriptures. He referred to the Bible. He referred to it as the Holy Scriptures. And the word holy there translates the Greek uh, adjective, hagios, which we'll see several times. But it is the most common uh, New Testament word for holy. And then interestingly, interestingly, the word scriptures there translates the Greek noun graphe, graphe, which, by the way, refers to the written word, refers to the written word. And so when we talk about the Holy Scriptures, we talk about those scriptures that God has given to us, uh, which express divine revelation. And so we, we talk about the Holy Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul referred to them as the sacred writings. And of course, the terms holy and sacred mean that the Bible is a special book in that it conveys divine revelation from God to man. Uh, a passage that I've hit several times before is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which says that all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, the Greek reads, Pasa, Graphe, Theopneustos. All Scripture is God-breathed. And Theopneustos is an interesting word. Um, some think that Paul actually coined the word, because I think when Paul was trying to think about the, uh, a way to explain Scripture, uh, he uses this word Theopneustos, which means literally God-breathed. And it's the idea, and, and again here he uses the word graphe when he's talking about Scripture, when he says pasa graphe, all Scripture. He's talking about the written word. And he says that it is theopneustos. And to say that the Scripture is God-breathed, well, it speaks of the source, first and foremost, that it derives from God to man. But also, when I think about someone's breath... I think about being close to that person because if I'm close enough to feel their breath, like when I'm next to my wife and we're, we're next to each other, if I can feel her breath, there, there, there's a closeness there, there's an intimacy there. And I think if one wants to really get close to God, one really has to go through the Word of God. And in that sense, I think Paul uh, used the word theopneustos. But he said that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable. And he lists four things here. He says it's profitable for teaching, because we have to be taught. Uh, divine revelation doesn't come to us automatically. It's not like it's downloaded into our brain. Uh, we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so we have a responsibility to study the word of God. And so it is profitable to us for teaching, and for reproof, because we need to be corrected. We need to have pointed out to us those areas where we are incorrect in our thinking, in our speech, in our behavior. And then for correction, uh, to show us what is right. And then for training in righteousness, for training in righteousness. Because to live righteously before the Lord requires us to be trained. And that means that we have to learn the Word, and then live the Word. And it's always in that order, because... Uh, as I've said many times before, uh, you cannot live what you do not know. And so learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will, and it's always in that order. Now, learning it is no guarantee that you will live it. 
And this is why James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. And James 4.17, which says, if any, For anyone who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And then Paul uses a purpose clause here in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And of course, I want to uh, live a righteous life. I want to be equipped for every good work. And so the Word of God gives that to me. Now, the Bible was written by human authors under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And so God the Holy Spirit superintended each human author. And remember that the Bible was written by roughly 40 human authors, spanning a period of approximately 1,500 years. The Bible was primarily written in Hebrew and Greek, although roughly Daniel chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. And we do get a few other words, too, like the word uh, paradisos. Uh, the word we get for paradise is a Persian loan word uh, that comes in as well. So we do. there's the borrowing of a, a word or phrase here and there. But each human author was under the superintending uh, uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit, uh, who basically guided them such that without each individual author compromising his own literary style and choice of words, uh, the end result is that what they produced was in fact the word of God and not merely the word of man. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 1.20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so that's part of that superintending work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, what they produced uh, is in fact the Word of God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so when we talk about the Bible being holy, we talk about it being a special book. It is, in fact, set apart from all other books because it is, in fact, the Word of God. And when, when we pick up our Bibles, we're really not picking up an, indi an individual book. We're really picking up a library, a collection of 66 books and letters that collectively make up the Word of God. So the Bible reveals that God is holy. Now, in Leviticus 11.44, God declares himself to be holy. He says, for I am holy. And Psalm 99, verse 9, it says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. And then we think of Isaiah 6.3, where the seraphim called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in these verses, the word holy translates the Hebrew word kadosh, kadosh, which, uh, according to the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, means to be holy or separated. And uh, to be separated is a, a common idea of the term holy, to be set apart. Now, James Swanson and this is taken from his Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Somantic Domains, he says that it refers to being unique and pure in the sense of superior moral qualities and possessing certain essential divine qualities in contrast with what is human, end quote. Now, when we think about God's holiness, it is really closely linked with his righteousness, justice, and perfection. And those other attributes will come in. And that was something that I had noticed when I was working on my uh, doctoral dissertation because I had done it on the attribute of righteousness. But you begin to realize that other attributes work very much uh, closely or in some ways in tandem. Like justice works very much in tandem with righteousness because righteousness reflects uh, the standard uh, of God's perfection, of his moral perfection. And so what the righteousness of God demands as a standard, the justice of God executes. And so you, you see them working very much in tandem with each other. Now, holiness denotes moral purity. It denotes 
moral purity. Uh, now, because God is absolutely holy, because he is absolutely holy, it is written in Psalm chapter 5, uh, verse 4, it says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and notice no evil dwells with you. No evil dwells with you. And this is why, see, and some of these things are important when we think about our salvation, when we think about our, our coming to God. Because in order for us to spend eternity with God, well, God has to clean us up because <laughs> we're a mess. And so we have to have our sins forgiven. We have to have all of our sins forgiven. And we receive forgiveness of sins at the moment of faith in Christ. Remember that stated very clearly in Acts 10.43, uh, where it talks about that all who believe in him receive, lambano, that Greek word there, receives forgiveness of sins. And so even though Christ died for everybody, unlimited atonement, the benefits of the cross are applied only to those who believe in him. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. And Ephesians 1.7 and other verses make this very clear. Uh, so God removes that which is an offense. He judicially removes our sin, and we talked about that in past lessons as well, especially when we talked about forgiveness. But uh, when we think of salvation, salvation is not just subtraction. It's not just the removal of that which is an offense, uh, uh, that sin. But it is also addition. And so God gives us his righteousness, and he gives us his life. He gives us eternal life. And so he gives us these things, and in effect, that makes us righteous because we have received that righteousness. It doesn't make us righteous in conduct. Now, we will receive glorified bodies in the future that will be free from sin, and in that sense, we will be completely delivered from sin in the future. We've talked about that before. Uh, but God imputes his very righteousness to us, and so uh, these things are done by God for us, so that we can ultimately spend eternity uh, with him. So again, because God is absolutely holy, it is written that no evil dwells with you. Now, by definition, and I have this definition taken from the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms, which is a pretty good little book, by the way, uh, and it sets forth the definition of evil as, quote, any act or event that is contrary to the good and holy practices of God. Moral evil refers to acts of sin of creatures that are contrary to God's holy character and law, end quote. So again, it refers to acts of creatures that are contrary to God's holy character and law. And Dr. Merrill F. Unger, and here I'm citing from the Unger's Bible Dictionary, he says, evil is the failure of rational and free beings to conform in character and conduct to the will of God. And uh, George Howley here, and I'm citing from the New Bible Dictionary, states, quote, God is separate from all evil and is in no way responsible for it, and it can only be attributed to the abuse of free will on the part of created beings, angelic and human, end quote. And, uh, and that's correct, uh, because prior to the fall of Lucifer, there was really one will in the universe, and that was God's. And, uh, and so, but God in his sovereignty created creatures with volition, with capacity to choose. And uh, from past lessons, we know that the first sin that took place in the universe took place by an angel of the class of cherubim by the name of Lucifer. And, uh, and he, at a point in time, set his will against the will of God, and he led a revolt in heaven. And, uh, and we have from uh, just a few passages in Scripture. Uh, we know that many angels fell with him. Revelation uh, 12 uh, leads us to understand that a third of the angels fell with him. And we don't know what that exact number is, but we know that angels fell with him. And so the first sin that took place took place in heaven by an angel, uh, the class of cherubim, and he set his will against the will of God. And we talked about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But when he led that rebellion, he created his kingdom of darkness. And, uh, and so he then came to the earth, and we know that Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, that evil was already in existence, uh, uh, that Satan had already, that, that sinful beings were already in existence by the time you get to Genesis 3, because Satan comes in already as a fallen creature. 
And at that point, he seeks to expand his kingdom of darkness, which he did, by the way, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned. And so at that point, Satan becomes the ruler of this earth. And remember that three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 describes him as the god of this age. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. Uh, Isaiah 12, excuse me, Isaiah 14, 12 says, describes Satan as one who has deceived the nations. And Revelation 12, 9 tells us that he deceives the whole world. And this speaks of the scope of his influence. Now, Satan has been judged at the cross and his his, uh, sentence is pending. And we know that in the future that he will be cast into the abyss for a thousand years and then ultimately into the lake of fire. Uh, But until then, he still continues to function as the ruler of this world, albeit on a leash, because remember that God is absolutely sovereign. And so any evil that exists, exists because he sovereignly permits it to exist, whether in the angelic realm or in the human realm. But anytime we're talking about sin and evil, we have to connect it with willful creatures who manufacture it. And, uh, And that is going to specifically refer to angels, fallen angels, and humanity. So again, I think Howley's correct when he says it can only be attributed to the abuse of free will on the part of created beings, angelic and human. Now evil, with regard to people, originates within the heart. I think of Genesis 6-5 when it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the word heart there translates the Hebrew word lev, L-E-B, but there the bait lacks the dogesh, so it has a softer pronunciation, almost like a V sound, the lev. But it speaks of the mind, speaks of the mind, of the intellect. And so uh, here he says that every intent of the thoughts, notice the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, Zechariah uh, 8.17 says, and let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And so again, this speaks of uh, the origin, you know, where it derives from. And uh, this, this evil can result in evil actions. Evil actions. I think of in Nehemiah 13, 17, uh, where he says, Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing? And here speaking of the action, the act of the will. Proverbs 24, 8 says, one who plans to do evil. So you can have evil thoughts, but then you can also have evil actions. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 12 speaks, says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so those are evil actions. Evil, by the way, can only be defined as evil because it stands in contrast with the holiness of God, okay? And this is why I bring it up here, because when we talk about evil, we talk about that which stands in contrast with the holiness of God. Now, people can, uh, evil can also lead to proneness. There can be a proneness to evil. In Exodus 32, 22, Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn, for you know the people yourself that they are prone to do evil, that they are prone to do evil. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.24, here he says, uh, where Moses says, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. And here speaking um, uh, to the uh, first generation that came out, but you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And evil can also mark an entire generation of people, an entire generation of people. In Deuteronomy 135, it says, None of those, none of these men, that is this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers. Now here again he's talking to that wilderness generation, the, the generation that actually came out of Egypt. And remember that when you read through the book of Numbers, that they had failed the Lord, they had disobeyed on ten occasions, and finally God withheld from them the land. They didn't lose their salvation, but what they lost was their inheritance. And so it calls this an evil generation. In Matthew 12, 45, 
Jesus also described his generation as an evil generation. And I sometimes wonder about our generation that we're in, especially here in the United States, because we seem to be trending that way. But again, I just simply bring up evil here to show that evil stands in contrast with the very holiness of God. Now, being holy uh, for God means that he cannot be affixed to anything that is morally imperfect. You see, this means that the Lord cannot condone sin in any way. And this is why we see passages like Habakkuk 1.13, which says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Again, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You see, and, and understanding this subject as it relates to soteriology, again, is helpful for us, because remember that there's, that there's only one thing that God can do with sin, and that is to condemn it. Now, the issue uh, is, is he going to condemn it in the offender, that's us, or is he going to judge it in a substitute? Because that's what the cross is about. And I've mentioned this before, it's why I keep going back to it, because at the cross, God judged all of our sin as his righteousness required, as his righteousness required, because at the cross, remember from noon to three when the sky grew dark, at that time God takes all the sin of humanity and places it upon Christ and there judges him in our place. And we've looked at a number of passages, and I think just off the top of my head, uh, Mark ten forty five, where Jesus said, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For many. And the word for there in that passage translates the Greek preposition anti. Anti, which is one of two prepositions. It's the stronger of the two. But it's the preposition there of substitution. That he gave his life as a substitute, a ransom as a substitute for many. And then, of course, Romans 5 8, which says, For God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the word for there translates the Greek preposition huper, huper, which again is the preposition of substitution. And then 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And for there gives us that Greek preposition huper. Again, uh, one of the two prepositions that communicates the idea of substitution. And so there it communicates, and these are just a few passages off the top of my head. We've hit this in greater detail in the past, so this should just be a refresher for you. But it's the understanding that Christ died as our substitute. He died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us, so that he might bring us to God, because we can't bring ourselves to God. And so what Christ accomplished on the cross um, is the only thing that satisfied God's righteous demands concerning our sin, because we can produce sin, but we can't deal with sin. We can produce it, but we can't deal with it. Only God can deal with our sin. And he did deal with it. He dealt with it at the cross. And remember that Jesus made it very clear in John 10, 18. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. And so Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. Remember the Father sent and Jesus went. And so he went to the cross willingly and laid down his life for us. And this is why Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is all that we need. Um, and this is why when I think of passages like in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, uh, where it says, uh, where Paul sets forth the gospel that Christ died uh, for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day and was seen by many. And this is set forth as historical fact. Um, and so when one comes to understand the very holiness, the very righteousness of God, and that he uh, can only do one thing with sin and condemn is, is to condemn it, and that we are sinners by nature, sinners by choice, uh, and that we can produce sin, but we can't fix it. And so this leaves us in a quandary because the only way that we can be reconciled to God is by the work that God does for us. And this is what makes the cross so wonderful. It's what makes the cross 
so absolutely wonderful. So as we think about these things, when we think about the holiness of God, we're thinking about it as a very complex, as, as, a, as a piece of a very complex uh, issue uh, with regard to soteriology. And that's why I'm diving so deeply into this, into this series of lessons to address these sorts of issues and to point these things out. So again, this means that God cannot condone sin in any way, and Scripture reveals your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and that you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, Everett Harrison, and here I'm citing from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, which is a good uh, reference work to have, he says, quote, the basic idea conveyed by the holiness of God is his separateness, his separateness. And that's one of the two aspects of holiness that I think we should have in our thinking of this idea of separateness. Um, and, and he goes on here uh, referring to his uniqueness, his distinction as the holy other, the one who cannot be confused with the gods devised by men, the one who stands apart from and above the creation. Secondarily, he says, the holiness of God denotes his moral perfection, his moral perfection, his absolute freedom from blemish of any kind, end quote. And it's interesting because when we think about the holiness of God, we think about it as, as something, as an attribute of, of all three members of the Godhead. And remember that God exists as Trinity, that God is one in essence, but three in person. And that all three members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal, and all worthy of praise and honor and worship and obedience. And so we think of this as, as an attribute of, of, of all the members of the Godhead. And it's interesting that the third person of the Trinity bears the title of the Holy Spirit, uh, HaKadosh Ruach. Uh, as he's referred to in the Old Testament, John 14, 26, uh, we see here, but the helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, and here we see the use of the term hagios uh, as one of the terms that we've already looked at, and we'll see this again. But he's called the Holy Spirit, which emphasizes his righteousness and his separateness from sin, and sin grieves the Spirit. It grieves the Spirit. In fact, there's a Interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Grieved his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, there's not really much that is said in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. We have more of an understanding of, of the person and the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. But this is one of those passages that shows that he was active in the lives of people in the Old Testament, and that clearly... Uh, when they rebelled, when they disobeyed the Lord, when they produced sin, that this grieved his Holy Spirit. And by the way, that is something that we can do as well. And so that's why we are told in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, now you can grieve him, but you can't grieve him away. Uh, but you can grieve him. And furthermore, Jesus, as the Son of God, embodies the holiness of God in human form. Uh, Hebrews 7.26 tells us that Jesus was holy, innocent, pure, notice, set apart from sinners. And, uh, and so this is uh, descriptive of our Lord. Now remember that when Jesus lived and interacted with sinners, and he did, he ate with them, he drank with them, he attended weddings, he was very public. He was very public, uh, especially during his time of ministry. But uh, Jesus lived and interacted with sinners, but he never had sinful thoughts, spoke sinful words, or acted in sinful ways. And we've looked at a number of passages that talk about the sinlessness of Christ. You can think of passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22, and 1 John 3.5, all which make it very, very clear that Jesus knew no sin, committed no sin, and in him there was no sin. And so very, very clear on that. So even though he interacted with sinners, um, eating with them, and so on, he never had sinful thoughts, never spoke sinful words, or acted in sinful ways. And remember that Jesus had to be pure, 
He was sinless. He went to the cross and he died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the perfect uh, satisfy. He was the perfect sacrifice, and of course, his death upon the cross satisfied every righteous demand of the Father. But when Jesus went to the cross, remember, he didn't go to the cross for his own sin. He had no sin. He committed no sin. He was perfectly righteous. And so, when he went to the cross and died, he went there to bear our sin. He went there to bear our sin, not his own. He had none. And so even though Jesus, during his time of interaction with unbelievers, he never had sinful thoughts, spoke sinful words, or acted in sinful ways. And no matter what was happening around him, Jesus never crossed the line into sin. Without abandoning righteousness, he loved and spoke truth, displayed compassion, helped the weak, and rebuked the arrogant. He was always holy in thought, word, and deed. And though near to others, he was still set apart from sinners. And so we know that Christ is really the role model for us as Christians. And so when I think about how I am to behave before the Lord, because we also are called to live holy lives, and that means that we are to strive for moral purity according to God's standards of righteousness, and we are to be separate from uh, sin uh, in the world, we do not. We're not called to that. Now we do sin, and of course, God has made a perfect way for us to be restored, and that is the beauty of First John one nine, which I apply daily, as a matter of fact, in my life. But uh, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be lights in a dark place, and so in that sense, we are called to this holy lifestyle. Now, going on in the notes here, in one sense, a person or group is said to be holy, that is set apart to God, simply by being part of the covenant community. Uh, now, it was said of Israel in Numbers 16.3 that all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. Now, I have a quote here from Alan Ross, and by the way, I uh, had to use his textbook uh, when I was working on my master's degree. His textbook was the standard Hebrew grammar textbook and really phenomenal. But uh, I love his commentaries, and if you ever get a chance to pick up any of his commentaries, they're really, really good. His uh, three-volume commentary set on the book of Psalms is probably one of the best I have ever, ever encountered. His commentary on Genesis, I think, hands down, is the best commentary on Genesis. It's an absolutely phenomenal work. Uh, but here I'm quoting him from his uh, commentary on the book of Leviticus. He says, uh, quote, they were holy because the Lord who set them apart was holy, end quote. And Merrill F. Unger says that God has dedicated Israel as his people. They are holy by their relationship to the holy God. All of the people are in a sense holy as members of the covenant community irrespective of their faith and obedience, end quote. Now, this is something we're about to see here in just a moment, because as Christians, we too are set apart. We are said to be saints, uh, which translates the Greek word hagios, the word uh, that connotes holiness here. And so there is a sense in which we are holy positionally because we've been set apart from the Lord or by the Lord, but then there's a sense in which we are to be holy in conduct experientially with regard to how we carry ourselves. Now, being set apart to God, the Lord expected his people to be set apart from the world and to behave in conformity with his righteous character and directives. Here, citing from Unger again, he says, quote, Based on the intimate nature of the relationship, God expected his people to live up to his holy expectations and thus to demonstrate that they were a holy nation. And the Lord told his people in Leviticus 20, verse 26, he says, You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. End quote. And I have another uh, quote here from Dr. Ross from his commentary on Leviticus. He says, quote, the means of developing holiness required faith and obedience on their part. But because it was a nation of very human and often stubborn individuals, progression toward holiness did not develop instantly or easily, and for some, it did not develop at all, end quote. And that was true. 
of the Exodus generation. Remember that um, that after the uh, the uh, the the Exodus generation, after they had come out of Egypt, uh, they were in the wilderness for forty years. Now the travel time from Egypt to uh, the land of Canaan would have been roughly about two weeks. And yet, that, that uh, Exodus generation wound up wandering around in a circle down there in a little uh, region of land called Kadesh Barnea, and they circled around down there for 40 years until the Exodus generation died off because they had been unfaithful. They had not advanced in their walk with the Lord. And of course, that's what the book of Numbers is about, largely. And uh, when we covered this, when we went through Deuteronomy a couple years ago, and I think that took us about a year and a half to get through Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy, remember, derives from two Greek words, Deutero second and Namos law. And Deuteronomy was the second giving of the law. And it was given by Moses to the second generation of Israelites uh, who, had come, uh, who, had, who had been born to those who came out of Egypt. Now, the exceptions were Joshua and Caleb, but the whole Exodus generation had to die off, and then their children were going to go into the land, not under the leadership of Moses, but under the leadership of Joshua. But we talked about that, how they had failed to advance to maturity. They had failed to walk with the Lord. And even though they were called out and were God's people and were holy in the sense that they were had been separated out by the Lord, uh, they had not become holy in conduct. And so this is, and that's what uh, Dr. Ross was talking about when he said for some that it did not develop at all, because that's true. Now, this is also true of Christians who are called saints. You see, we are called saints, not because we act saintly, uh, we ought to, but we're called saints not because we act saintly, but because of our relation to God as part of the church, the body of Christ. You see, at the moment of faith in Christ, at the moment that we understand the gospel, the good news, that Christ died for us, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day and seen by many, when we come to understand who he is and we understand what he accomplished for us, we are to then place our faith in him and to trust him as our Savior. And I think of Acts 16.30 when... uh, uh, Paul had answered the Philippian jailer when uh, the jailer had asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer came forth, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Because it's that simple. It's just simply trusting in Christ alone. Uh, Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And Acts 4.12 tells us that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so man needs only Christ to be saved. But at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And so we are at that moment, we we have a new identity. And we're actually going to cover this here in a few months when I uh, cover the doctrine of election. I'm still working on my notes. I'm still hammering that out. I was working on it this morning for a couple hours, as a matter of fact. But we are said to be in Christ, a prepositional phrase, in Christo, that Paul uses several times. And it speaks to a positional identification, to positional truth. That is, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And so we have this new identity. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. Colossians 1.13 tells us that we have been transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Uh, John 1.12, Galatians 3.26, make it very clear that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, that that we have this adoption as sons, and we talked about that in past lessons as well, but we have this new status Uh, at the moment of faith in Christ. And part of this is that we are then placed into the body of Christ, which is the church. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul wrote of the church at Corinth. He said, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice saints by calling. And there's that Greek adjective, hagios, saints by calling. Now, the word saints here, again, translates the Greek hagios, which pertains to being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. 
And that's taken from Badag, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. Uh, now, in this passage, hagios is simply a synonym for a believer in Christ, not a description of their character. In fact, all Christians are said to be saints. Romans 1.17, Paul talks about the beloved of God in Rome called as saints. Uh, Corinthians 1.1 and 2, saints by calling. 2 Corinthians 1.1 speaks about the saints who are throughout uh, Achaia. Ephesians 1.1 talks uh, where Paul writes to the saints who are at Ephesus. Philippians 1.1 to the saints uh, in Christ who are in Philippi. Colossians 1.2, he writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now clearly the Christians at Corinth were saints positionally even when they were not even when they were behaving like mere men. And remember that they were called saints again which is simply a synonym for a believer. That's what it is. It's simply a synonym for a Christian. Now you know the Catholic Church has really butchered this. Uh, other denominations have too because they've created this superclass of believers that they call saints. And that is a completely foreign idea to the scriptures, completely foreign. Now, the uh, Christians at Corinth were saints in Christ. But remember that when you read passages, um, well, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how there are divisions in the church. Uh, in, in Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about how uh, they are very carnal. In chapter 5, he talks about a man who is having an affair with his father's new wife. I mean, that's, that's yuck, that's nasty stuff, but that's what was going on. There was drunkenness in the church. Uh, they were having lawsuits with each other. Uh, I mean, really, really a bad situation. Uh, they couldn't get their act together when it came to spiritual gifts. And so when Paul writes to them, he's writing to them to correct them for a lot of problems. And so even though they were saints positionally, they were not acting like it. And this is why, like you read uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 3, where Paul says, And I, brethren, clearly talking to believers, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, that is, as to mature believers, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants, notice, in Christ. They are in Christ, that is their status, but they're babies. And, uh, And this is somewhat of an insulting term that Paul uses here for them. And he says, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly, that is, you are governed by your sinful nature, your sinful flesh. And in that sense, they were operating in status quo carnality. He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? I have a quote here from Warren Wearsby. He says, quote, The church is made up of saints, that is, people who have been sanctified or set apart by God. He goes on, he, said, he says, A saint is not a dead person who has been honored by men because of his or her holy life. No, Paul wrote to living saints, people who, through faith in Jesus Christ, had been set apart for God's special enjoyment and use. In other words, every true believer is a saint because every true believer has been set apart by God and for God, end quote. So we have to differentiate positional sanctification from experiential sanctification. Positional sanctification refers to our status in Christ, that is the moment in time in which we are justified, that is a single act. Justification is not a process, it is an act. Sanctification is a process. But justification occurs at a moment in time. It's at the moment of faith in Christ, and God gives us his righteousness, and we are declared just in the sight of God. And that is is because of the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God. And so at that moment, we are positionally in Christ. And so that speaks of our positional sanctification, in which we are uh, positioned in Christ and therefore set apart by God. Our experiential sanctification is phase two of the Christian life. That is our advance to spiritual maturity. It is is the life we live from the moment of faith in Christ until we leave this world and enter into heaven, either by death or by rapture, whichever comes first, but we leave this world. And so we have this advance where we are advancing 
to maturity. And so this is part of uh, phase two of the Christian life, and that refers to our experiential sanctification. And so I'm really addressing, I'm looking at both of these issues in here, and hopefully you've been able to track me on this. Now, Christians living in the dispensation of the church age are called to holy living. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, Like the Holy One who called you, notice, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that was from 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. And so therein lies the call, the marching orders for the believer uh, that we are to be holy. Now this takes time. We have to advance, we have to grow up, we have to advance to maturity. Now God, who is our Father, is holy. He is set apart, he is uh, morally righteous in all that he is and does, and he calls for his children to live holy lives. Now for Christians, living holy to the Lord is accomplished uh, in us uh, as we advance to spiritual maturity uh, as we learn to live obediently to the Word, as we become obedient to the Word believers. You see, at the moment of salvation, we come into this world, and apart from the gospel, really many of us don't know much more than the gospel itself. Uh, and so we must begin this lifetime journey of learning the Word of God, and as we take it in, uh, we must learn to let it flow f uh, freely in the stream of our consciousness and let it uh, assimilate into all of our thoughts and all of our values. Uh, and by doing so, what we will do is we will wind up expunging a lifetime of human viewpoint that we took in. We took in a lot of human viewpoint from the world, and we conjured up a lot on our own. But we took in a lot of human viewpoint via television, literature, music, uh, discussions with people. And so we ram, cram, and jam all of this human viewpoint into our thinking. And, uh, and from the moment of salvation, we must then begin the process of expunging, uh, removing this human viewpoint and replacing it with divine viewpoint. Because if we're going to be successful as Christians living in a fallen world, we need to learn to think excuse me, we need to learn to think God's thoughts after him. So we have to learn to renovate our thinking. And so we must begin this process of advancing to spiritual maturity. And for us as believers, it starts with us learning God's word. It starts with us learning God's word. Now, I was saved at the age of eight, but I really didn't get turned on uh, to the word of God until I was about 25 uh, 24, 25, and that was back in 1992. And when I plugged in to the Word of God and I began to really listen to solid, exegetical, expositional, verse-by-verse -verse, uh, Bible teaching, uh, it rocked my world. In fact, there was a huge uh, shift, a whole paradigm shift in my thinking. And, uh, and I began to look at life very, very differently, and I didn't even know what was going on at the time, uh, this huge paradigm shift that was going on in my thinking. But as I was taking in the Word of God, I was learning to see life from the divine viewpoint. And so I think of in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, where uh, David describes the righteous man. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And the word law there translates our Hebrew word Torah, Torah, which simply means instruction or direction. Uh, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, the word meditates translates the Hebrew word Hagah, Hagah, and it's, it's the opposite of what we think of like Eastern meditation, which is like an emptying of the mind. No, this is a filling of the mind. This is a filling of the mind with the Word of God. And the benefit of this person who meditates on the Word of God day and night it says, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And so it's this picture of somebody, a tree planted by a river whose roots extend down into the life-nourishing water and feeds upon that constantly. And so we take in the word of God. I also think of Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, which says, and Ezra had set his heart... Uh, now, that's code language for positive volition. That's what that means, that he set his heart to do several things. One was to study 
the law of the Lord, and it must be studied. You have to study the Word of God uh, in order because you have to learn it in order to live it. So Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. You see, you have to set it into motion. And this is where the walk of faith comes in. This is where we take what we learn. Uh, as we take in the Word of God, we, we assimilate it again to our, into all of our thoughts, and then we begin to apply it. We practice it. We put it into practice. And Ezra even took it a bit further. He says, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so he communicated it to others. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed. And it is profitable for teaching, because again, we have to be taught, we have to be instructed for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, that by it, because we will never advance to maturity apart from the intake and the application of the Word of God to life. Uh, and so we must take it in. We must also uh, submit ourselves to the Lord. I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, therefore, now what Paul is doing here is he's shifting, because if you know Paul's uh, didactic style, his teaching style, uh, he generally gives doctrine followed by application. If you read Romans 1 through 11, basically Paul is saying, know this, know this. He's giving you teaching. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he's saying, do this, do this. He's giving you application. He does the same thing in Ephesians, by the way. If you read Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all doctrine and heavy doctrine, I might add. Uh, but he, he, gives, he, he gives you information. He says, know this. And then in Ephesians 4.1, it says, therefore, and Paul shifts. And in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, he gives application. Do this. Do this. Now, Peter has a different didactic style, a teaching style, because he sort of, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll teach you something and then tell you to do it. Teach you and do it. Teach you, do it. And so he has more of a rolling style. So every teacher is a little bit different. Um, but that's how Paul operates. But nonetheless, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, notice to present your bodies, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Now, on the, in the Old Testament, uh, the animal sacrifices were a one-and-done offering uh, because the animal gave its life. Well, you're to give your life too, but you are to give your life as a living sacrifice. And that means that you have to place yourself on the altar of God's will. And the problem with us is we spend too much of our time trying to wriggle off of it. Uh, but we are to be a living and notice holy sacrifice, uh, which is acceptable to God. Notice which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says, and do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't be pressed into its mold. Remember, I've told you that any dead fish can float downstream. But you have to be alive, and you have to have positive volition to go against the current of culture. And so we are not to be conformed to this world. That is from the pressure, the outside pressures that seek to conform us into its mold. But we are to be transformed. And the word transformed gives us the verb metamorpho. Metamorpho. We bring into the English as um, to metamorphize. But here it's metamorpho, and it means, to be, it means to be transformed from the inside out. And this speaks to the power of God's Word once it, once it gets into you. And uh, remember that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and that it is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, God tells us in Isaiah that when my word goes forth, it accomplishes what I sent it to do and does not return to me void. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a Bible teacher. I want to give you the scripture because the scripture will transform you from the inside out. And so we are to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Because remember that the mind has to be renewed. You have to, you have to again replace that human viewpoint with divine viewpoint 
Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4.17 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And the word submit there translates the Greek verb hupotasso, a military term that actually means to rank under. And when it says submit therefore to God, it means that you recognize the authority of God over your life and you submit to his authority as an obedient child. And we are to walk by faith, Scripture tells us, that 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not feelings. Uh, we don't walk by our experiences. And one of the characteristics of a, mature, of a maturing believer, you know you've hit a certain place in maturity, when the Word of God becomes more real to you than your circumstances, your feelings, or anything else in your life. And when, you are, when you've hit that place, you've really hit a, a good place. Hebrews 10.38, God says, But my righteous one shall live, notice, by faith. Now again, we take in the word of God, we learn the word, because Romans 10.17 says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So you take it in, you learn it, and then you apply it. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We must also learn to be filled with the Spirit, uh, Ephesians 5.18. And as I mentioned before, the filling of the Spirit does not mean that you have more of the Spirit at one time and less at another. It means the Spirit has more of you. Uh, it means that the Spirit is fulfilling in you all that He desires. And so we'll talk about that in future lessons because I have a whole series of lessons we're going to do in a few months on the spiritual life and how we advance to maturity, how we reach the spiritual high ground, and what, what is the Christian walk, and I'll talk about that in future lessons. Phase two of salvation is what we're going to look at. Uh, but we must learn to walk by means of the Spirit uh, because this, the, the Christian life is really a supernatural life. We have to learn uh, to accept trials that help us to grow, uh, James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing, uh, and that's a causal participle, it's because you know something, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the word perfect there translates the Greek adjective to laos, and it might better be rendered as mature, so that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, as believers, we are also to be devoted to prayer. We are to be devoted to worship, to being thankful to God, to fellowshipping with other believers, serving other believers. Uh, Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity through the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are to take advantage of the time that we have. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, uh, not as unwise, but as wise, making, notice, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And time is a commodity. It's a resource like anything that the Lord gives us. And we are to make good use of our time to structure our day, our habits, our practices, our activities, to make sure that we are making the most of our time. On the negative side, it means not loving the world, nor quenching the spirit, nor grieving the spirit. Those are things that we can do if the directives, if the negative directives uh, uh, were not uh, a reality, then they would be superfluous. If we turn to sin, and that's always a possibility, it means that we are not living holy lives as God expects. Uh, when Christians sin, and we do, it does not result in loss of salvation, but it does result in loss of fellowship with God. I talked about that a few lessons ago when we talked about the two categories of God's forgiveness uh, with regard to believers, that it means loss of fellowship. It also means that if we continue to live sinfully, that God may discipline us, that he may deny us eternal rewards, uh, and eventually we may even suffer the sin unto death. Now, humble believers acknowledge their sin, and God restores them to fellowship when they confess their sin to him, seeking their forgiveness. Because remember, 1 John is very important to us in our advance to maturity. For if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful. That means he always does the same thing. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, later on in 1 John 5, 16, he says all unrighteousness is sin. And so what that means is that if we confess the sins that we know about, God is not only faithful to forgive us of the sins that we confess, but to forgive us of all the sins that we have forgotten or may not have been aware of. Because God is perfect and everything he does is perfect. And when he cleanses us, he cleanses us perfectly such that we are restored back to fellowship with him. So that will finish out our lesson here on the holiness of God. So hopefully we understand the holiness of God a little bit better and also how it relates to soteriology and why the cross was absolutely necessary to satisfy the holiness of God and also how we as Christians are set apart, that we are saints positionally and we are called to be saints experientially in our walk with him. So hopefully this has been helpful uh, to you this evening. And uh, next week we will pick up and talk about imputed righteousness, a very, very important doctrine and one that is not taught uh, very much, but a very, very important doctrine. I'm going to encourage you strongly uh, to catch that lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this time of fellowship together, for studying your word. And uh, Father, we just pray this evening uh, that as we take this time uh, to finish out our study, that this will be a time that we will be able to continue thinking on these matters, that we will continue to think about the subject of your holiness and how that relates to us as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ as our Savior that we are now in a right relationship with you, that we are saints by calling, and, uh, and that you expect us to advance to spiritual maturity, to learn your word, to live your word, to walk by faith, and to function as lights in a dark world. And Father, we just pray as we go forth this evening that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.